Hey, welcome to Crazy Town. I'm the producer, Melody Travers. In this bonus episode, Asher speaks with the climate activist, Tim DeChristopher, about the role of sabotage, the destruction of property and infrastructure in the past and the future of the climate movement. Tim DeChristopher is best known for sabotaging an auction of oil and gas leases on federal land back in 2008, for which he went to federal prison for 21 months. In the period since, Tim's helped found a couple of organizations, Peaceful Uprising and the Climate Disobedience Center, that are dedicated to supporting voluntary peaceful direct action around the climate crisis. He also attended Harvard Divinity School and studied to become a masseuse, so a guy with eclectic interests and skills. Thank you for joining us, Tim, in Crazy Town. I think that you probably have lived in this town for a long time, but appreciate you being here today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Sure. I reached out because I wanted to talk to you about climate disobedience and specifically the prospect of sabotage. And by that, I mean like the destruction of of private property, destruction of infrastructure. And b- before we get into kind of the larger c- conversation around that, I just thought it might be useful for folks watching or listening to, for you just to share a little bit of your own experience with direct action and climate disobedience. Would that be okay? Sure. Yeah. I think my experience has been mainly in the the paradigm of of civil disobedience, of taking actions which might have to be organized in secret in order to pull them off sometimes, but with the intention generally of of being open, of you know, of taking credit for it. And in particular the the sort of niche that, that I ended up playing in, in a lot of the movement and that the Climate Disobedience Center has fulfilled in the movement is is working with defense trials around civil disobedience to use the trial as an organizing opportunity to tell this public story and kind of doing direct action that has that has some direct impact on the industry, whether that's delaying things, costing them money, but doing it with an, an emphasis on trying to maximize the symbolic impact as well and, and trying yeah. to have an impact on, on the cultural narrative at the same time. You know, and I think where where the the line there with more sabotage type actions is, I think there's much more of an emphasis on the direct impact, and oftentimes, particularly with the the legal risk of it, it means not not being public about it, trying to not get caught. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's there's there's a little bit of a fine line there with with some overlap. So using this disobedience as direct action as uh, opportunity for garnering attention to the climate crisis. I mean, that's that is, I think, what happened in your case. I, I don't, I don't know that you intended what wound up happening, right? In terms of all the attention that was focused on your trial. Not exactly, but in some ways. Would you say you lo- sort of learned through that process? Yeah. Okay. So maybe you can say more about that then. Yeah. I mean, you know, I did have the intention at the time of being very public about it and having it have a public impact, having it have a ripple impact on the broader climate and environmental movement um, and on the people who, who cared about climate change. And that was, that was successful. But part of that impact is that the, 
the context around direct action and, and civil disobedience, particularly in the climate movement, has shifted a lot over that past you know, almost 15 years now. Mm-hmm. That, you know, at that time, part of the reason that that my story became as big as it did was that there wasn't very much of that happening in the climate movement. And and a lot of people were really hungry for right. it. They, you know, the movement was much more focused on appeasement at that time. And a lot of people were hungry for something more confrontational. And over the past decade or more, there's been a much broader embrace of direct action and of civil disobedience. And it's not it's not front page news every time somebody gets arrested for direct action anymore. You know, it's, mm-hmm. it's extremely commonplace. And, and so that's part of what shifts the kind of cost benefit there, that the symbolic impact of just getting arrested for something you believe in is much smaller at this point right now than it was 10 or 15 years ago. Hmm. So that makes civil disobedience a lot less impactful on the culture change side of things. What about in terms of within the within sort of the judicial branch within the court system? Because you talked a little bit about the Climate Disobedience Center, you know, helping with with trials, right? I mean, is the is there a shift there from it being a sort of like a public attention thing to trying to actually challenge within the judicial system? Yeah, you know, I would say there's two there's two shifts going on. You know, one is the shift that we've been trying to drive towards opening up the opportunities for folks to be able to present their whole defense, particularly the necessity defense or, or some sort of affirmative defense that says, mm-hmm. yes, I did this, and here's why it was necessary. Here's why the climate crisis is so severe and the government's response is so inadequate that it necessitates this kind of action. And you know that has been a frustrating process of kind of chipping away at all the barriers to a defendant being able to actually speak freely in a courtroom and really mount a full defense. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we've gotten partial necessity defenses and partial victories and continue to try to, to open that up a little bit more. But then at the same time, there's been this other courtroom trend where our opponents have been trying to increase the criminalization of nonviolent direct action. And we've we've seen that particularly with the the critical infrastructure bills that have been passed in a lot of states that make it a, a serious felony to be trespassing on the property of a piece of fossil fuel infrastructure or blockading the entrance to it and things like that. And so we're kind of on the defensive in that way of trying to fight off this increased criminalization of nonviolent direct action, which again changes the cost benefit analysis for that kind of um, tactic that, um, you know, the the industry is trying to make it look like if somebody is is interfering with business by blockading the entrance to a facility or something, that they should be treated in the court system like they're, you know, somebody who was blowing up the, the pipeline. Mm-hmm. And... So if that's going to be the case, I think there's going to be more and more people saying, well, if I'm going to be facing those kind of charges, maybe I should do something at that level. <laughs> if I'm, you know, if I'm already going to be treated that way by the court system, you know, I might as well take out some infrastructure with me. Yeah. So speaking of pipelines, right, Andrea's mom wrote a book 
provocatively titled How to Blow Up a Pipeline. It's not really, I didn't find it to actually be a manual for how to blow up a pipeline, but he... <laughs> that was a disappointment, right? Yeah. <laughs> I know you wrote a uh, a review of it, but in that book, essentially, he argues for sabotage, right? For the destruction of property and of infrastructure. I think he is pushing against what he sees within the, the climate activist movement in adherence to nonviolence mm-hmm. at sort of at all costs and and argues that I think that there have been people who have who have studied and and put out arguments saying that it's really only nonviolence civil disobedience that actually leads to to change and he's argued against that in the sense that it takes a myriad of approaches you know, I'd love to talk to you about sort of your own views on this, but but before we do that, I guess I just want to, I've been puzzled for a long time as to why we haven't seen more of this, you know, and, and again, I'm, I'm speaking from my experience, not someone who's been part of discussions of people who have been contemplating doing these things, and the world is a big place and we don't always hear everything, right? But at least from my perspective... I've not seen much of this at all coming from the climate camp, even as the the climate situation becomes more and more dire and as the international response becomes more and more blatantly pathetic, right? So I'm just curious, one, do you share that kind of perception that this is like a surprise on some level that this hasn't happened? And why do you, why do you think that is? Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely share that surprise and, you know, for... 15 years, I've been shocked every day that young people are not burning something down in defense of their own future. But, you know, I do think there's a lot of reasons for that. I think a big part of it has to do with the way that the climate movement kind of has a tendency to lie to itself. And it's kind of resistant to the full truth. Part of it has been this clinging to a hope that things can be okay or that, you know, we're not really that late in the game, that we can still turn things around through these legal channels without really grappling with what it means to be this late in the game of climate change. You know, one of the things that, that pushed me into action or, or into the degree of action, the radicalness of action that I was taking that auction in 2008 was that at the beginning of that year at a big climate conference at the University of Utah, Dr. Terry Root, who was one of the, the lead IPCC authors of the, the fourth report in 2007, was there. And and I went up and talked to her after her presentation and questioned her about some of the graphs that she was showing where they showed these emission scenarios of the 21st century of like all their possibilities with like going off the charts of in business as usual and ones where we turned it around, dropped emissions and, and then one at the bottom, I think, peaked at 2030 and started coming back down. That was like their best case scenario. And so I went up to her afterwards and said, it looked like that peaked at 2030, but didn't the report that you all put out say that if emissions didn't peak by 2015 and start coming back down, that we wouldn't even recognize the planet? She's like, yeah, that's right. I said, so what am I missing here? Mm -hmm. She said, you're not missing anything. She said, there were things we could have done in the 80s and things we could have done in the 90s, but... um, I'm sorry, my generation failed yours. Hmm. And, you know, that was, um, that was a, a, a tough blow for me, you know, like 
she had literally just won the Nobel Prize at that point, you know, for for that climate report. And she was saying, like, sorry, it's too late. Your future's screwed. And and you know, what that did for me was put me into a, a period of grieving for the loss of a lot of the future stability that, you know, I had hoped for my life. Mm-hmm. And what it meant was also grieving for a lot of the things that could be taken away from me by the the legal system, by a lot of the things that are the costs of taking radical action, the personal costs. Those were the things that I'd already grieved the loss of hmm. when Terry Root was honest enough with me hmm. to tell me like how late in the game we really were. Mm-hmm. And that was a that was a rare thing then and unfortunately it's continued to be a rare thing for the last 14 years since then yeah you know where in their public statements scientists activists a lot of people working on climate change are just sugarcoating it because the the instructions that they're given by like climate communications specialists you know like Yale Climate Communications is like, you don't want to scare people. That doesn't motivate people. And so we've mm-hmm. we've continued to engage in a level of action that is not actually appropriate for the point of the crisis that we're at because we haven't really been honest with each other about it. You know, and I think the, the other thing that goes on a lot in the climate movement is this sort of historical amnesia about our own movement hmm. that that loves to erase the history of what happened, you know, even 5, 10, 15 years ago in order to kind of pretend like um, what we're doing right now, this this campaign this or these strategies or these tactics are groundbreaking. And so they have a chance of working. Like if we're occupying the office of this legislator or this governor, like, you know, we're going to tell ourselves that it's the first time that this has ever been done, you know, or this day of youth climate action, we're going to tell ourselves that, you know, this is the first or the biggest youth day of youth climate action ever, even when that's clearly not true, you know, like the way the Sunrise Movement like erases the history of the I Matter movement. And, mm-hmm. you know, and I think, again, that's, that's kind of an attempt to like give people hope and give people motivation. But what it ends up doing in a lot of cases, I think, is motivating people and giving them hope towards a strategy that has proven to fail many times over in this movement. Mm-hmm. And and so we see these these cycles where you know people engage in these legal advocacy channels and then hit the wall and figure out that that system is rigged and then you know they they start protesting more and doing more nonviolent direct action and then find that that system is rigged against them as well and that there's a limit of what can be achieved there and you know are pushed into to something more radical you know we saw that you know with the generation of old environmental activists from the 70s people like Dave Foreman you know that worked in DC lobbying and then ended up starting Earth First and then the wave of folks in the the 80s and 90s that saw the professionalization of the environmental movement and then you know, ended up getting into ELF and ALF and organizations like that, you know, and I think we're probably on the cusp of it again with a generation of folks like the the Sunrise Movement that has 
worked so hard to work within the system and and even incorporated protest into what they were doing in a more confrontational way than the generation of lobbyists before them and have been sold out by the Democrats and sold out by Joe Biden in the same way that generation of climate activists before them were. And I think a good number of them will turn to more radical action because when you when you actually understand the severity of climate change, you're not just going to give up on your future. It is still interesting to me that you talk about these cycles. You were you were galvanized in part by the honest you know conversation that you had, but it's like you said, it's 14 years later, right? And we haven't seen that that cycle turn yet. It it, it still surprises me. I'll just say it surprises me. We haven't seen more of it. Sometimes I think about it as, and I think we need to be clear about where we're talking about too, because I, th- I still think that there's a level of comfort that we have. I mean, there are obviously lots of cases of environmental, more aggressive environmental related, you know, sabotage efforts that have happened mm-hmm. in other parts of the world, right? Yeah. When it really has come down to this is literally my livelihood or my life right now, or my the land that's sacred to my people. Yeah, we just saw just saw it in Canada last week with a group that was supposedly armed by armed with axes, according to the the pipeline company that came in and smashed up a bunch of equipment. You know, and it at this point like looks a little bit suspicious, but you know, it's more direct and severe property damage than we often see, at least on this continent. Yeah. So, what are your views then on destruction of property as a point of of intervention on actually going after pipelines or other forms of infrastructure and do you see it as inevitable? Do you see it as an important part of like a, a set of strategies? Like, sort of, what are your views on this? I I do more and more see it as important and and necessary and and I think we're in a different moment of opportunity now, hmm. where the severity of climate change is more deeply understood by a, a greater portion of our population, and where the the context around movements in general has has shifted quite a bit. When Elf was burning down some stuff in the West in the in the nineteen nineties, like that was considered pretty radical by people. Mm-hmm. But you know, in the summer of twenty twenty, when the Black Lives Matter movement was was sweeping the country, there were there were buildings that caught fire. <laughs> Let's just say that there were. There were fires that happened in in the vicinity of those protests, and and it did very little to undermine their their public credibility. Everybody on the on the left side of the political spectrum was still very clear that they support the Black Lives Matter movement, even though there was some property damage associated with some of their their actions. And you know, there was obviously criticism from the right on that. But then, not much more than six months later, the right was engaging in property damage at the at the Capitol building on January sixth, and in fact, engaging in deadly violence against human beings. And now, calling it peaceful demonstration, right? Right, le- legitimate political expression, according to the the RNC. <laughs> so, so that context, I think, has has shifted a lot in this country, where where people are so keenly aware that the system is broken that that they're willing to embrace more radical action. Yeah, I I want to talk about 
I really want to get your thoughts on what we've been seeing in Canada. But I'm just curious about this point of, you talked earlier about the impact of nonviolent direct action being much more minimal now than than when you became sort of famous for, for what you did. Mm-hmm. And therefore, the the idea of using it as a tool of public consciousness, right, is, is it's not as effective anymore. So when it comes to actually destruction of, of, of property, kind of ramping it up and, and sabotage, is it about, in, view, in your view, about now t- having a different narrative still focused on that public consciousness piece? Or is it more about like, forget it, forget the public conversation. This is actually about doing damage to the to the infrastructure of the fossil fuel machine that's sending us over the precipice? I think, I think it could be both. Mm-hmm. You know, I think there's still a lot of potential for sabotage to have a big impact on the public narrative. You know, one of the things that, that Andreas Malm talks about in his book is kind of using sabotage strategically to help frame the narrative, particularly about the outsized emissions of the concentrated wealth of the 1%, you know, and he talks about things like sabotaging private jets, which are like the ultimate symbol of excess consumption and excess wealth that makes it clear like what the battle lines are and is much more inclusive in kind of drawing those battle lines that addressing climate change, you know, isn't about getting our, our random middle-class neighbors to change their lives or about shaming them because, you know, they're driving to work. It's first and foremost about reining in the the extreme wealth of the rich. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I, like ever since I read that, I've been fantasizing about that. And, <laughs> um, you know, and I think that could be incredibly powerful and, and could, could disrupt some of the greenwashing narratives. You know, like, you know, you could just imagine at the next COP UN climate gathering has been a facade for 26 years, keeping the climate movement playing these games that never had the potential to go anywhere. You can imagine the next one of those with all of the global elites that come in there to, to lobby and to sway the system. If a bunch of their private jets lined up at the airport, were all sabotaged or blown up or whatever, while they're parked on the, the tarmac, that, that would, uh, change the narrative both about climate action, about the carbon consumption of the the elites, and about the kind of fake greenwashing of the UN process. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of potential there. But, you know, I think in other parts of the the fossil fuel economy, it it really could be about just the the direct impact. You know, whether that's fossil fuel, fuel shipments by rail, where sabotage can be extremely effective at disrupting the the fossil fuel economy there even things like the the valve turners actions that shut off the tar sands pipelines coming across the border from canada there's lots of opportunities there to to escalate that tactic to make it harder for them to turn them back on uh, i think also in in the the coal economy that is like seeing a resurgence in this country over the past year there's lots of opportunities for sabotage to have a, a big impact. And we've seen a, a little bit with Jessica Reznicek that you know, sabotaged the, the pipeline for the Dakota Access Pipeline. She chose to make that public 
well after the fact, but she could have easily just kept quiet about it. And I think there's there's lots more opportunities there to have a serious direct impact on the industry, which then makes them less financially viable. Already the protests against new pipelines and new fossil fuel infrastructure is costing them, them enough delays that it's becoming a questionable investment by the banks and financial institutions that fund them. And so any push over the edge there can have a big impact. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I think there's there's lots of opportunities. So we've seen the situation in Canada, right, with the, with the protests there, putting aside their grievances and the politics of it. Has the climate movement done anything on any level that's been close to that successful in terms of disrupting the machinery of, of an economy or changing the public narrative? No, I don't think so. So are there lessons to be learned there? And what would those be? Yeah, I mean, I've, I've been a part of organizing efforts that wanted to paralyze a city that effectively, that tried to do an occupation or, or intersection shutdowns in D.C. and that sort of thing, and really came nowhere close. And part of it is the, the willingness of American police to just arrest, <laughs> arrest us all on the spot and not indulge the way that the Canadian authorities indulged the, the trucker protest. Part of it is obviously the, the physical efficacy of having tractor trailers and large trucks that are, that are harder to get out of the way. But yeah, I think that's in some ways an example. I think, unfortunately, there has been an effort on the left to kind of demonize what's been going on with truckers in Canada, you know, and even in otherwise activist supporting publications like Truthout that are writing editorials saying that those are not protesters, those are fascists that are threatening democracy and cheering on the fact that the government is freezing the bank accounts yeah. of nonviolent protesters that are disrupting economic activity and um, and even freezing the bank accounts of people who financially support the blockaders. Or just are suspected of it, right? And giving the banks basically cover to freeze anybody they suspect, right? Yeah, and how anybody on the left thinks that that's not going to get turned around and used against us is just absurd. I, I think right now we should be well, like, regardless of whether or not we agree with the truckers, we should be defending their right to to protest in that way. Yeah, and I think that was that was one of the things I I was really concerned about and wanted to get your take on is that shouldn't we anticipate that kind of of draconian overreach on the part of governments if people are doing anything that is meaningfully disruptive to an economy? Yeah, and how do you prepare for something like that? And the other thing I guess I was curious to get your thoughts on is, I I guess I I don't want to put it on a spectrum of escalation, but if we talk about making clear distinctions between sort of nonviolent direct action, that's, let's say, largely symbolic. And then there's sabotage of a property infrastructure that might be symbolic or might be about a public narrative, but it might also actually do something meaningful to disrupt either the bottom line of fossil fuel companies or or somehow impact emissions on some on some level and then there's actual violence against people which i don't i don't know of anyone that's advocating for that but i do wonder if you know we've talked about why we haven't seen 
kind of the second one on that spectrum, right? We haven't seen more of the kind of sabotage piece. Do we also have to be concerned about at some point seeing actual violence happening as people feel more and more acutely that their that their existence is threatened by the by the climate crisis? And what do we who might not advocate for that need to do to prepare for the 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 pushback or the blowback to either of those things? Yeah, I mean, I do think it's something that can be to be concerned about in in the longer run. In Kim Stanley Robinson's, I don't know if it's his newest novel, but The Ministry of the Future, it's largely like a technocratic utopian view of the messy best case scenario at this point for climate change. Even that still includes where like a, a big part of what created the opportunity for that technocratic solutions to be implemented was a much more radical level of not just sabotage, but you know, a group that that took down a whole bunch of jets on one day, you know, with people in them, a lot, like a lot of people died in that, that turned the tide against air travel. And even their like technocratic ministry of the future division had a, a black ops wing, a dark wing that was assassinating key people in the fossil fuel industry and lobbyists and things like that. So that's kind of out there. In some ways it's, yeah, as as Andreas Malm points out in his book, it's it's rather remarkable that the the climate movement and the environmental movement out of which a lot of the climate movement grew never has gone there. You know, it's remarkable that this movement of tens of millions or hundreds of millions of people over the course of fifty years has never killed anyone. Which I don't think there's another movement that could say that. That's true. Certainly as a movement, maybe there have been individuals who have done things. I, I, yeah, I, 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 agree with your, I agree with your point, for sure. And I think that's partly because of the, the underlying values of the root environmentalism that you know, I think is, is rooted in an understanding of the interdependence of, of all life and, and respect for all life. You know? And so I think in terms of preparing ourselves for the possibility of that that violence against humans happening you know i think holding on to those values upholding those values reinforcing them and and continuing to have that be a core part of what motivates us is going to be extremely important mm-hmm. for that that as we escalate into property damage you know i think it becomes ever more important that we always remind ourselves that we are acting out of defense of life and, and in respect for all life. Do you feel like the climate movement is grappling with this question of how do we, if not even embrace destruction of property, but how do we prepare for the likelihood of destruction of property and what it might mean for the, the success of the movement? No, I don't think they're grappling with that at all. But there's a big difference in how these things are being done, right? Like, for example, you know, XR, you know, Extinction Rebellion, uh, disrupting trains in London, people just trying to get to work. Mm -hmm. Bad optics. Do you know what I mean? I mean, here's public transit, you know, and the people who are being affected here are people who are just trying to get to to work and can't afford to, to, to miss out. So it does seem like, and again, I'm not, I'm not an activist organizer, but it does seem like 
how things are done makes a big difference in terms of how the public narrative is shaped. And some people were, are going to call people terrorists no matter what, people who are trying to continue to propagate the system as it currently stands, right? But they'll, they'll come up with any excuse they want. To me, it's about the sort of the, the general public and what resonates for them. And part of my concern is that, I mean, you talked about earlier about the 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 cost of doing business for the fossil fuel companies becoming increasingly more severe and in that they could actually have doing you know actions against pipelines or other forms of infrastructure could actually have a real meaningful financial impact on them at the same time we're dealing with inflationary pressures around energy prices for example and i also we could have a bigger conversation about the challenges we're going to have with like shutting down fossil fuel infrastructure and, and the challenge of replacing it with renewables certainly seamlessly, right? So mm-hmm. just worry about there being a big blowback if prices are already spiking or there could be issues. I mean, we have issues now in Europe with shortages of natural gas, for example, that people are dependent on. People take action, do you know what I mean? And then are they being the ones blamed for this? So I worry that the climate movement is not planning for for that kind of reaction or response. Right. You know, and that's why I think with stuff where there's the opportunity for a powerful, positive impact on the the cultural narrative, like going after private Mm -hmm. jets or something, I think it I think it makes sense to speak up about that afterwards. But with the the other side of the coin where I was talking about having a financial impact on the industry. You know, I think in a lot of cases, it makes it doesn't make sense to take credit for that. Just mm-hmm. let it be the industry's cost. They don't they don't necessarily want to come out and and say like, hey, somebody did this thing to sabotage our equipment. Here's what they did, you know, because they don't want to like publicly admit those vulnerabilities. And so it's just kind of like quietly their cost. And that's part of the lesson of some of the earlier chapters of of sabotage, like Elf and Alf, is that trying to kind of straddle that public narrative of taking credit for it with anonymous communiques, that really backfires. Mm -hmm. You know, like if there's not a face for somebody to associate with, if there's not somebody who can publicly come out and say, this is what I did and this is why, it's better to not say anything at all. Mm -hmm. Like don't create that public drama and then just kind of hand the platform to our opponents in industry to frame the narrative Mm -hmm. that, you know, in some ways the narrative effort has to kind of be all or nothing. If we're not willing to fully step up and and own it, just quietly do it. And, you know, and there's, there is a lot of that stuff that happens, you know, on a small Mm -hmm. scale that we don't hear about because the industry doesn't want to talk about it. Mm -hmm. Um, and, And that's where there is that potential where we can be, racking up their costs and as far as the public is concerned it's just their costs it's it's just their fault yeah that's a really interesting point and then maybe if it does come to acts of sabotage that are are being done for that public narrative i hear you saying really fully own it and try to own the narrative but also be pretty strategic about what those actions are and, and right. the target of those those actions. Right. I do think that on some level, it's useful to have a, this conversation just from the standpoint of 
I don't see it very top of mind. I appreciated mom writing that book just from the standpoint of trying to engender more of a conversation about this. Cause I've not seen, not only have I not seen much action uh, like he's been calling for, but I've not even seen much conversation about it. Yeah. So I think the more discussion that people are having about whether they're in favor of this, whether they're going to participate in this or not, right. just recognizing that I think it's inevitable and trying to think about how to anticipate it, how to help think about more effective ways of it happening and, and to anticipate the blowback, which I'm really concerned about, frankly. Yeah. And I think, I think that conversation is not going to happen within the established climate movement Mm -hmm. and within any established climate organizations. There's, there's just too much professionalism. Any, any organization that is in the climate funding pipeline, you know, of foundation grants and that sort of thing is, is not going to lead or take part in that Mm -hmm. discussion. But I think that part of the movement has kind of reached the limits of what it can accomplish anyway. I think in general, we need to be starting from scratch and work completely outside of movement, established movement culture. Mm-hmm. But I think there are a lot of people out there that are kind of connecting the dots of where we're at and, and are probably ready to do sabotage and ready to support it when other people do it. And I think that conversation has to happen in a organic, grassroots kind of way outside of the the established narrative because the established groups have the narrative that works for them and they control the channels of communication for for their little ecosystem to to silence other discourse and at the time when i disrupted the auction that that's what was happening around civil disobedience and and nonviolent direct action within the established climate movement was like they were controlling their part of the conversation to to make sure that that didn't get brought up but you know i found there were lots of people that weren't in that established movement that were deeply concerned about climate change and ready for more radical action and i think we're we're still at that point uh, even more so mm-hmm. than ever before are you seeing signs of of hope for the emergence of either new groups or new ways of, of organizing that's outside of that established climate movement? Um, I don't know. I, you know, I'm, I'm not sure I'm plugged in enough to, Mm -hmm. to see that. Um, I guess I'm confident or have faith that that is happening at some level under the surface that those, that those connections are happening. You know, I think, some of the big convergences in action camps and particularly the indigenous led camps like at, at Standing Rock. And then more recently at at line three, there was a lot of that happening at an organic level. A lot of relationships get formed when people are there for, you know, months at a time. And, and so I think that's going to be really generative. You know, there was kind of an explosion of, of creativity and boldness that came out of Standing Rock. And I think we're right on the cusp of seeing that come out of, the line three encampments. So I know that it's happening. Well, Tim, thank you for kind of exploring some of these questions with me. Yeah. It does feel like it's an area for people to keep their eyes and ears peeled to. I think we're going to probably be seeing these kinds of conversations happening more and more. I hope so. And probably seeing 
more actions that 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 test us and maybe push push people to think about um, what needs to be done and how we can support things. So, thanks a lot. Well, thank you for being willing to have the conversation. Take care. This is our last bonus episode before we launch season four on March 9th. In our upcoming season, Rob, Jason, and Asher chronicle watershed moments of history that have led humanity into the cascading crises we face in the 21st century. Hit subscribe on your favorite podcast app to make sure you don't miss an episode. Did you know that this program is actually sponsored by folks like you? If you've been listening and getting something out of the experience, we'd love you to join our crew of crazy townies, dedicated listeners who make a monthly donation to Post Carbon Institute to help us produce the podcast. Want another way to give back that is totally free? Write a review or share an episode with a friend. Every little bit helps. Thanks so much for your support.